Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast, and indeed, welcome back, as I expect. For the most part, most of you are kind of in the train with us now and on this journey for the long road ahead. So thank you for sticking with us, and it's been wonderful to see how the audience has been expanding. So I'm going to say welcome if you're in Australia. Welcome if you're in Canada or the US or in Spain or Sweden or Belgium, as those countries, for whatever reason, seems to be where many of you are. So welcome, welcome indeed. And if you're not in any of those places, then welcome to you too. We're having another conversation today about the kind of conditions that are needed to nurture the kind of leaders that I and our guests believe are needed to make our world better. And this conversation today is about one of the sort of foundational phases of life that maybe needs to change and be shaken up and maybe we can reflect on why it hasn't changed so much for a really long time. And that is the time that we spend in full-time education. Our guest today is Ben Newsom, a man who is full of boundless energy that I have been delighted to have an ongoing dialogue with for some time. And Ben has been working in, with, through and around the Australian educational sort of arena uh, as an external curriculum provider for now going on 15 years. Ben's also networked and involved at a board level internationally and has got some really, really deep understandings and real sort of wisdom around how education is serving people, societies, communities, and the planetary system at the moment. So this is a dialogue about Ben's work, about his view on education, what is good right now and what needs to change. And this is indeed an energetic dialogue. So I welcome you to it. Strap in, get ready. Here we go. And Newsom, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Tim, I'm so glad to be here, mate. No, man, we've had so many great yarns over the time we've gotten to know each other. So I'm very much looking forward to another one with you here today. Could you first please just let anyone who's listening to this know where in the world you are today? Sure. I'm in Western Sydney, Australia. I am in a suburb called Blacktown. Uh, It's a nice little part of the world. It is. I know we have some family in Blacktown, so I, I know the area very, very well. And um, mate, let's do a little bit of the of the the superhero backstory, just as far back as you want to take us and bring us up to current day. So where did it all begin? Well, I don't know about superhero, but I must say uh, I do like what I do. <laughs> right. So uh, there, there's work and there's life, but let's go with the work thing for now. So uh, I run a company called Physics Education, F I Z Z I C S. Education, physics education, uh, started that in 2004. It's a science outreach company. And so uh, wind this forward so it's not a huge spiel. We work with hundreds and hundreds of schools across uh, Eastern Australia with a team in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Canberra. 
And uh, we do science outreach for schools, libraries, museums, and on behalf of large companies that want to do social impact, which frankly is the best part of the job. I also run a nonprofit called Virtual Excursions Australia, which supports a variety of different organizations around the country to do distance learning events and have been doing that for about 10 years or so. Uh, That's a little bit about me. Yeah, a little bit. I know there's a lot more, but I think that that's going to emerge more sort of fluidly as as we talk rather than, you know, sort of with a specific focus. But yeah, Ben's done some cool stuff and, and yeah, there's, there's going to be a heap in the show notes so you can scroll down and check that out. I really like to sort of, I suppose, explore, you know, what brought you to some of the things that have the most meaning for you. So you've just mentioned there, you know, that you, you have the you know, the affinity with doing the social impact side of your work that you have a not-for-profit. So what specific moments, if there are any that you can identify, sort of sit within that deeper backstory that, you know, sort of brought you to wanting to do that kind of work or sometimes, you know, it happens the other way around that when you start doing that kind of work, you kind of reconnect to something that happened a long time ago and you go, oh, that must have planted a seed and now I can see how it's germinated. So how did this all, how did this all happen for you? Yeah, so why on earth am I doing this, hey? <laughs> so uh, if I think about why I got into science outreach and distance learning and everything in between, it really comes down to, uh, well, what is science literacy? What actually makes people understand about how the world works from that point of view. So when I think about when I got going, got going, the, uh, it really comes down to the when I was working in, as a bushland regenerator. As a bushland regenerator in Sydney Basins, fixing uh, some of the really de- debilitated uh, creeks and river systems and all the rest in the Sydney Basin, uh, we'd be chopping down trees and people would think we're either daily release prisoners or wrecking the bush in some way and we'd get abuse <laughs> for this. Uh, and I realized there was a, there's a disconnect between what people understood people were doing as opposed to the reality. And so I trained as a teacher. And the idea for me was, well, if I can be as a teacher, I can then maybe impact 10,000 kids, 20,000 kids over the course of a career. But having trained as a teacher, I realized, you know what, what if I wasn't constrained by the education system? What if I could work alongside it? or work beyond it in a way that would reach even more kids. So that's how physics education got going from a science outreach point of view. Distance learning, as I was traveling out to these country towns, these regional towns, you'd really see this happiness, these children, you know, they, they're getting to see something, you know, the, the funds come to their place, so to speak. But the thing is, as a bush kid myself, I knew that that's the reality for them. I mean, if you live in a small town of a couple thousand kids, and a lot of my family actually do, those opportunities just aren't always there. And so I realized that unless funding was always there for regional kids, and let's be honest, they've got a little bit of funding for people to come out to the bush and do things, but it's not always there on tap. At the same point in time, there was this uh, a series of interactive whiteboards and video conference systems being installed right across New South Wales uh, called the Connected Classrooms Program, whereby uh, you had several thousand schools all hooked up with this digital network to do conferencing, yet there was not real much content coming through at 2010, 2011 to these kids. So I started doing distance learning programs for these kids in regional remote Australia because, for me, it was an equity access problem. These kids would have to rely on serious funding to get someone like me or one of our team out to their, their schools in Western New South Wales, or we could just beam in now. And now everyone knows it's because of COVID because, well, COVID's shown that there is a thing called web conferencing. But 10 years ago, it was less known. Very much so. So for me, 
together, it's all been about equity access and helping regional kids. And yes, of course, this turns back into metropolitan areas, uh, but that's actually where the, where this all came from. That was the genesis. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, it's such a good story. And, you know, like me, you grew up in a in a part of the world where you don't just walk down the road to a museum. You know, I grew up in the countryside in the UK. And yeah, in the UK, yeah, you can jump on a train or a bus for an hour or two and, you know, be in a big urban environment. But that's <laughs> that's not the case in this continent-sized country that, yes. <laughs> that we're sitting in today. And I really, really hear the salient point that you make about equity and access and obviously that that we're talking about you know sort of educational information and this is a thing that's coming up more and more one of our previous guests Hernan Harrow talked about this and he's coming from a completely different perspective to you he runs a venture capital fund in Mm. Argentina but but for him it's about equity and access to information about finance and financing and capital and, and and how that all works and then it's about actually access to getting the capital you're talking about something much more sort of fundamental from a conditions perspective, which is, you know, basically not all kids have the same opportunity to engage with information and particularly the learning experience that conducts and conveys that information to them. And then that little bouncing ball takes you to people who understand how the world works and how they are in it very, very differently, depending essentially on where they grew up and where they went to school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of think about what what are the opportunities for for a kid in regional Australia or regional any country. So comes from different different ways. Sometimes it's the parents themselves raise the money to do a thing. There will be some form of government program. And now let's be honest with government programs. I don't care what country you're in. They only last a certain amount of time and they're cyclical and then fall apart. And then they get permutated and redone again. Uh, So they're rather transient. And then there's the programs that have potential but are less acknowledged. It's the programs that are run by, I mean, you mentioned you, you, you guess with a venture capital uh, fund. That would work with companies that do social impact programs, undoubtedly. And so there's a capacity for large organisations to work with outreach teams or whatever it is in the education sector to really help move the needle on education access. Uh, the challenge with that, though, and there is, is there's often a perception problem uh, that, you know, some large company might be coming in and it's all about branding and blah, 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 and all the rest. And uh, they can actually be barred at the gate despite there being programs that are actually useful and, frankly, free (laughs) for the kids. It's amazing. And so when you sort of think about that landscape of equity, there's a perceptions problem. And it's also it's a perception problem of what people think equitable access is. So I mean, you see debates about who should get what and how should the funding be divvied up within government systems, et cetera, et cetera. But the same thing happens when even when something is literally being given to the students, it can be barred by the school officers because there's a perception issue or it may not fit with a curriculum or whatever it is. And let's be honest, curriculum's contentious. But sometimes there's just cool things out there that just don't make it in. You know, I just thought I'd just bring that up. It's just a, if, if people are listening on in, there. let's be honest, it is a, a multi-pronged seesaw <laughs> trying to balance when it comes to education. Now I have this vision in my head of like eight planks. Yeah, so do I. It's exactly what I had. 16 seating positions and, yeah, like it's a wobble board effect. Totally. Right? <laughs> and no one can win, right? But, it, I mean, eventually when you think about the various players in education, and this, speaking to what this is all about, which is about leadership, 
you think about the, the education leaders, the principals, the assistant principals, the teachers, the head teachers, the assistants, the librarians, and everyone else, everyone's got the child's best interests at heart. So do the people in the government programs who want to make sure these things get rolled out on, at scale. The issue is that when you're dealing with scale, there's going to be holes. Things are going to be stretched. Not one size fits all. We know this. And so there's a real uh, dynamic between what local knowledge is to systems knowledge. And then there's how do you fill the gaps? And that's where the interesting part is. And it's rather gray, but it's kind of fun to try and make that happen. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and that really is the work, I think, across almost all themes and topics and uh, modes of engagement at the moment. I think one of the bigger sort of awakenings through COVID has been the sort of the relocalization effect. All of a sudden, people have sort of stopped. They've had to sort of essentially remain in place, hopefully their place, a place that they've chosen to to spend in, but appreciating that some people have been, you know, sort of caught and literally trapped at times, but you've had to stay where you are. That's given you a real connection to what's going on in your locale, right, in, 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 yeah. in your zone. And then we've had all of this looking up and out at what's going on, you know, in a very much hyper-connected global perspective. And I completely agree with you. I think where the gap is, is the sort of, that's that's where the gears need to mesh, right? Like, I think it's great that people have become more grounded. You know, one of the ironies of, um, you know, not just being able to walk into the shops and get absolutely everything that you want in abundance is you start to really question where do things come from and how mm. much of it could I actually get hold of locally? And then you you appreciate so much more the way that, we are completely connected within many, many overlapping systems and all of them need to work completely harmoniously. Otherwise, things break down really quickly. But it's the ability to connect your local place through some other space to that influence that we all have on this massive systemic effect. And schools are a perfect conduit for that, right? Because they're local, but they're very much part of an institutional system. Uh, And you have a teacher but then that teacher changes every year and the students come from your local community, but you're all studying this, you know, sort of systemically designed curriculum, which can maybe be interpreted to your context and place, but quite often not, I, uh, I fear, certainly. I remember back at university, uh, one of my lecturers, it was actually on educational assessment. Um, it's not as dry as it sounds. I actually surprisingly actually found it interesting, <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, he just quipped something and it's always stuck with me. He said, education's a battlefield, not a schoolyard. I went, really? And he described what he meant. And he said, look, you think about it. You've got all these different opinions, different uh, thought leaders in the space, and it's all highly contentious. And so it's never going to be that you think about the eight-pronged seesaw we are thinking about before. It's never going to stabilise. There'll always be another thing that comes up that then tips the balance. But this, this is kind of good. It's sort of dynamic. I mean, that's sort of how uh, you know dialogue works. But, I mean, you kind of think about when you were describing the systems. I mean, schools are not isolated. They're hubs of a community. And they're also a microcosm of that community. I mean, students, as they go up from the very, very young through the end of high school, they really get to see at least different units working together and they get exposed to different thoughts and ideas for their subjects and community leadership programs and things. And I think the real strength that schools bring is allowing kids to connect properly with their community with, with different resources and things around. But if the school can't do that, if they're not working well with the community or they aren't accessing programs that 
thoroughly accelerate the students well beyond the set said curriculum. Those kids enter the big, brave world knowing far less than they could have. Now, the issue, of course, they then comes down to a training side, right? And, and also network. I mean, you could have the most brilliant teacher on the planet, but if they don't have connections to the right ecosystems of knowledge that can accelerate those kids or the, or the support structures, it's going to be real tough to you know, help these kids, especially in disadvantaged communities. It's quite the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, look, I mean, so there's there's something that you've just touched on. I'm going to do what we sort of classically do. So if you're a seasoned <laughs> listener of this, you're like, okay, Tim's going to do the looping thing. So there's about three things that you've just touched on that I would like to double click on sure. in sequence. You just mentioned dialogue, which I know is one of your four, you know, sort of specifically named conditions that you think needs to be nurtured more. So I definitely want to go there. And so I'll, I'll ask you that the next question I'm going to ask is what are these four things and let's unpack them. But you've also touched on, so what was resonating with me as you just um, explored that last point was around, you know, sort of really what are schools teaching and what could they be teaching? And I sense there is a, a shift at the moment, but I'm not sure that it's there to the necessary extent, which is a shift from your teaching basically learnt knowledge to being an emphasis of your teaching how to learn and you're sort of sprinkling some sort of contemporary knowledge over the top of that really just to sort of play with and to experiment with but the primary mode of the school is to educate people how to learn so that that is something that they can do for whole of life Uh, and we had this conversation um just off air about critical thinking which i think we'll circle back to but i think the the other thing is yeah i i completely agree and i think that the school is a microcosm for a community is such a wonderful place but one that we kind of ignore as a young person yeah, because we're obliged to go and we have to be there, right? And then when we're there, you know, there's an expectation that we're going to do certain things a different way. But I think, I think that's a missed or overlooked uh, rarity in life that, you know, once you walk out of those gates at the end of year 12, like where else are you going to find a space that's got a complete spectrum of your community where everybody's there for shared purpose with best intentions and so on and so on and you can point to okay well maybe maybe the church group or maybe the hospital or you know is there another yeah really all-encompassing social conduit and certainly in my community there are all of those things but none of them is as unanimous and as cross-representative as a school and i think in a lot of communities there are less community uh, you know, sort of um, incubators. There's a school up in northwestern Sydney, uh, a good friend of mine. Um, he wanted to teach about VR, VR headsets, tech stuff. And you'd think like, you know, you just get the kids to strap the goggles on and experience something that was created for them. He rightly said, no, that ain't, that's not going to work for me. Uh, what he did was he went into um, districts around his suburb and got kids to film air at things in 360 cameras. And of course, you've got to have a 360 camera in the first place, but he had one. So he did 360 cameras in various areas. But then he then got the students to connect with an aged care home. This is cool now. So let's say suddenly the, the kids are in late primary school, are coming into an aged care home when we were allowed to do that prior to COVID, and getting the aged care residents to experience what the students had filmed but then take the goggles off and go right what was it like 60 years ago there and that overlay images of 
what it was like then. Oh, and wow. suddenly this rich dialogue just turns up because, I mean, I've run programs into uh, residential aged care and uh, I love it. We actually run these programs, of all things, talk with an Aussie to an American uh, <laughs> sites. And uh, it's all about what, what's Australia like. Honestly, I never know what the question is going to be. Like, sometimes I'll be talking about the price of gas or whatever it is, but as you talk about, you know, what the price of gas is, they'll, they'll talk about, well, I caught a, a cruise ship from LA and went to Hawaii and it came down to here. They talk about their history. And I think about what that primary school was doing. Eventually it was to teach kids about VR. But what the outcome was, was not VR. It was connection to community. Mm. And the kids now, because, I mean, again, then we're talking about leadership, start to hear about what it was like to be a leader back in time. And now they're being given a scaffold to become a leader now. And I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I love it. So let's talk about your own personal sort of scaffold of conditions. And you've just touched on sort of dialogue formation there again. So what are the the specific question for you to respond to is what are the conditions that you think we need to nurture? And let's just make it specifically in kids in order for those kids to go on and, you know, create a better version of what we're living in today. Awesome. Now, you did send, uh, send those questions off uh, uh, prior to this. And uh, one of the conditions I'm going to add to this is, is sleep. <laughs> so, you <can> remember, <laughs> so you can remember what you've actually said. But in the meantime, off the top of my head, uh, dialogue's definitely one. You can't have it happen. I think another thing is the ability to have a multidisciplinary team and being able to handle that dialogue when it's not going the way you like it. To be able to stop, listen, think, don't react, talk it through. Uh, I mean, you kind of think about like, I mean, when we're trying to solve the world's problems or issues and whatnot, you could have a team of scientists only or a team of historians or whatever it is, whatever takes your fancy, but there's always something missing. And I mean, when I mean multidisciplinary, I don't just mean industry specific. I mean, I mean, you could have age, gender, cultural background, historical background, or whatever it is, the richer the experiences of those people trying to solve a problem, the more likely they're going to solve it. For me, that's highly important. Another thing for me is resilience, is the ability to go, you know what, stuff's bad right now. And you know what, if we take on this project, it potentially might get worse. <laughs> but uh, the, the job of the leader is to set the vision and make it happen. But um, the re- having some resilience for the harder times, I mean, I, don't, I truly don't think that unless you have these crazy unicorn ideas that suddenly work beautifully, you have to have the resilience of, of the grind of time that these things are going to take a while to be pulled up, pull off. And what's coupled with that is fearlessness. You've got to be able to handle straight up failure. And of course you take, you know, manage risk. You don't like you know, bet the farm, but having the confidence in yourself and your people that you're working with to be able to handle failure and let them own it and then fix it without you jumping in and micromanaging or whatever it is that's going on. I feel that the far, the far better teachers, the ones that uh, uh, leaders that want to nurture an environment such as like such as that, is that they lead with empathy, dialogue, fearlessness, and resilience. Well, well done. Despite your uh, previously disclosed uh, sleep deprivation, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you recalled your own stuff. So, well done. I got there. Um, we got there. <laughs> I, I, that's so great. And there's so much, what I really like about this, Ben, and, and you know, no surprise, you know, as, as an experienced educator who works in a lot of different 
environments, right? A lot of the different cultural contexts. Uh, you know, you you go and walk into a you know, public high school in Blacktown, that's going to be very, very different to a public high school in, I don't know, Karatha or Coolangatta or wherever. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance in each of those areas that you've just described. And each of those frames is going to mean something slightly different to each person, but especially child. And each of them is going to sort of start in a different place with all of that, right? I mean, I can just look at my two kids. As of right now, recording this in early 2022, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And I observe the dialogue between them and then I participate in the dialogue between myself and them. And I'm like, this is such this is such a sort of a base skill, right? That I can watch these two beings, you know, who've not known each other that long, like have this really kind of complex dialogue. And then I can sit in a room with people with 40 years of their experience who really struggle to, <laughs> to hold a conversation. Yes. Um I think there's so much that's gone on culturally over the past kind of, you know, especially kind of 20, 20, 30 years where a lot of our educational structures and frames at work have sort of forced us to forget a lot of what is kind of innate to kids that you can have, you know, kind of a dialogue in equity between kids of different ages from different experiences and everyone's kind of welcome to come in and share their thoughts. Right. And that gets, I think that kind of gets sterilized on the way through a lot of the time. But I love that point. I think resilience is massive. I, I feel like 2022 is going to be the year of resilience building. I think whatever your experience has been over the last couple of years, I sense just so much exhaustion right now. And, and I think this is going to be the year where pretty much everybody kind of goes, yep, you know what? I got some work to do in this in this resilience domain. And you know what? I think this is one of the very necessary skills because if I look at the complexity of what, lies ahead over the next 30 40 years that i hope to be working and through which our kids will grow up and and into the workplace right like if you don't have resilience you're done right there is just there's going to be so much change and there's going to be so much confusion and there's going to be so much stress as we go through all these big shifts and and there's going to be lots of disruption um you know sort of compounding on what we experienced through covid then you've got to have that um, and I love, I love this thing about fearlessness. So let's double click on that. So how do you see fearlessness being taught? Yeah. So thankfully it's, it's definitely coming in stronger and stronger in the school system, at least. I mean, I can, can speak to that. It's around design thinking projects. So, you know, when you've got this nebulous, amorphous idea that we might be able to solve a thing, but we don't know how to get there yet. We've got a rough idea what the goals are. Allowing kids at a very young age, they could be seven or eight or whatever, getting them to start to come groups with, you are not perfect. We're going to work together to solve said thing. You know, if you're dealing with young kids, you've got fine motor skills. They can't even hold a pair of scissors. Some of them, <laughs> it's really hard. It's, they're going to have failure with even just cutting the thing. Other kids can't have trouble with just the idea of thinking of a 3D space and how the objects might come together. Sorry, guys, I'm a STEM teacher, so I'm going to talk STEM for a bit. But uh, if you've got these components coming together, some kids will have issues visualizing how this thing might work, and they might think they've got it together. 
And then the whole thing just falls apart because it was a teetering stack of bricks. Having kids, being able to fail with whilst being nurtured to handle it is important because you, you, I've got young kids, right? I mean, it started at 2022, I've got a 12 and a 9-year-old. And um, I mean, you think, I think of my kids, I mean, one of them uh, totally has no problem, fearless. I'll just have a shot. The other one, we've had to work with that particular child for quite a while to be able to handle when stuff goes wrong. And I'm not a world's genius, but my first go. <laughs> it's just that that is so important because it, the, the thing is, that you think about what happens in the adult world. By the time we got to year 12, this has been beaten out of us. We have to get through the exam. Or we're now at some some site and we're now working for this particular site or maybe you're running it. And if this project goes to goes to whatever, we're in a whole whole lot of strife. Now we might be, but what if us as leaders within our own organizations, what if you set up uh stretch goals, stretch projects whereby you go, you know what, internally, it's okay if it doesn't happen. Give them a go. Because what happens is, that, is there's an unintended but very good consequence of failure. There's a camaraderie that's built around it. And you closely stitch, you know, knit those teams together, those people together, around a common failure that I go, right, the next step there is how we're going to work together on the next thing. Now, iteration is a thing, but um, being able to handle failure with fearlessness, not being afraid to fail is incredibly important. Now, I actually think about my own world. God, 25-odd years ago, I was exact opposite of what I was just preaching just then. I 100% wanted to pass the exam and da 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 and do all the things. And uh, I wasn't like a – wouldn't freak out if I failed, but I certainly didn't handle it that well. And so I wanted to do things well, perfectly, because I didn't like the idea of failing. Now, the, th- the reality is that failure is 100% a marker of success. <laughs> it just is. And so I think getting kids to understand fearlessness on that context is fine. Now, I was just thinking, Tim – whilst we did list out four, circling the whole lot of it becomes empathy. Understanding where each of your teammates are coming from, understanding where your community is coming from means that no matter what you're doing, you can shape it to best be placed in that community. Uh, Empathy matters. Where are they coming from? Why are they coming from? That to me is important too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's just kind of conjoin two things so you did just briefly mention and declare or disclose your <laughs> stem orientation um and and now we've got this beautiful sort of working framework of empathy as the sort of the connective tissue or conductive fluid perhaps between resilience dialogue and fearlessness so how do we bring more of these things into stem world because frankly, when when I, yeah, again, I'm dealing with, you know, organisational people who come from any of those backgrounds or any combination of those backgrounds, don't tend to necessarily see a lot of focus on empathy and dialogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a great, and you know what? There's a real shift movement going on. Uh, I mean, I work in primary and high schools, but predominantly it's the younger kids in primary that we do a lot of work with. There's a little bit more room in the curriculum, literally the hours where they're allowed to spend on where they can do these sort of design thinking projects. The best way to make it happen is within the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The reason why is that it forces you to think about why are you trying to solve the thing? Who benefits? Why would they benefit? Is this even a thing worth solving? 
Like understanding the context of a problem at a real visceral level, and even better, what if you can remove it beyond your local community? What if it is happening somewhere else? You think about even just one of the SDGs, like clean water, very universal. Clean water means different things to different communities by a long way. And how you solve it is highly dependent on what resources you've got at hand as well. So it's sort of getting kids or, as you sort of mentioned, um, organizational people, adults, to empathize with the people who receive your solution or even better, empathize with the people contributing ideas to the problem-solving that you're doing means that you're taking in people's perspectives, right? I mean, even this conversation right now, like you're listening to me deeply so you can sort of have, we can have a great interview and and similar, I'm listening to you because I want to know where you're coming from so we can kind of like work together on the dialogue. Uh, If we're trying to solve a a problem and you're just harping on, like this is the way, my way or the highway (laughs) type thing, well, I hope your highway is really good (laughs) because some people may not want to travel it. Uh, I hope that sort of makes sense. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, how do you know if the highway is, you know, the way that you should be going and are you just on the highway because it's easy? Are you just yeah, on the highway right. because you have driven it every day for the last 25 years? No, I think it's a great metaphor. And I think the problem with the highway is it's just one way. It's linear. It's linear. So as soon as there's any disruption, then you don't know where else to go. And again, it's that lack of critical thinking that <laughs> leads to a lack of adaptability. And especially if you couple that with a deficit of empathy, then not only can you not understand that you've engineered yourself into an isolated way of thinking, but you can't understand why other people can't understand where you are and can't relate to why you just want to keep driving down this same road. So this is this might be a good point to inflect on a different different frame which is you know what do we need to look out for what are the things that we need to be conscious of or even cautious around when we're thinking about what are the kind of conditions that we need to try and nurture uh, well like this uh, so initially just going off what you were just talking about before carbon copying the last idea a bloke down in melbourne mentioned uh to me your best thinking five years ago is your baggage today it's real we don't like to admit it, right? Because it, it, we have a certain comfort zone. Okay, you know what? I've seen this before. We'll just do this like, you know, let's just do it again. Now, that's going to work for a while, but I think uh, being able to push your boundaries a little bit is important. The um, What to look out for? I think um, it's not just in what someone's saying. It can be even the body language in the way they're saying, <laughs> saying it. I mean, I'm having a great day with gritted teeth. <laughs> You can kind of see. I mean, so try learning. If you can see that people are not getting on from it, you know, it's not frictionless. There is friction. Now, friction is important to a degree to create a great, robust dialogue. But when it's clearly a dysfunctional team, that's a problem. If it's clearly a solution that will not fit the problem and no one can see it, well, that's a problem. I mean, it's a... The issue is that if you've got a group of people trying to make something happen and there's a lack of direction, someone's got to eventually go, right, we're going this way. So yeah, that, that, that's an issue as well. I mean, we can kind of we can like drill, drill into this a bit, like going down the rabbit hole. The more you think about like when things go wrong, it's 
it's not just the problem you're trying to solve and whether the time and resources were realistic to be able to make it happen. It's could the people see dynamically, left field, so to speak, to be able to fix it in a way that's unique and potentially life-changing. I don't know. It's a, that is a learning thing. I don't think I'm, I'm all the way there yet. I think I'm still learning on this too. Cool. No, well, we have to be, right? Like, I mean, I, I 100% don't believe I have any of the answers. I just aim to provide some decent questions. Yeah. Um, so there's something that I'm curious about, and this is me kind of hopping the fences a little bit, but, you know, I'm aware from our previous conversations that, you know, you have this connection um, to this network, you know, of, well, two networks, a museum network, museums network, which is which extends outside of Australia, um, and also to a network of educators that extends, you know, kind of further afield. And, and if I recall correctly, you're on the board of a, of a sort of a network of educators. So I think the kind of the big question I'd like to throw up, and then we can just unpack this and, and, until we kind of almost come to a close, is how consistent are the things that we've discussed today globally? And, you know, is what we've talked about today just relevant in the Australian context or from what you're seeing through your network contacts, is this a kind of a convergent shift that is happening and needs to continue to happen right around the world? First word that came to mind was sporadic. Okay. is the correct word for me. You've got centres of excellence smashing it out of the park and you've got others roundly ignoring it or unable to make it happen for whatever reason. Right, and okay. so it's it's kind of like you you think like when a, when a pot's on a stove and it's boiling and you get bubbles here and there. That's kind of what's going on. Yeah, all, well, that, so, all around so the world. The, the, the obvious question, but one that I can't resist, is where are the most sort of prolific centres of excellence at the moment? Like you don't have to know specific schools, but just sort of geographically, like where is this shift happening furthest and fastest? Interesting. You know what? I'm actually going to set some homework for people. If those people want to know from the education side. Spend time on the education hashtags, and there are a few of them, within Twitter. Now, I mean, Twitter is a whole other beast. But the reason why I say that is that so that we don't date this recording, I could say, I mean, there's certain places in Australia that do really well. I mean, everyone loves to say Finland, but it's not not the only place. Estonia is doing an awesome job as well. There's heaps of places around. But uh, the thing is, is that the world is not static. It moves. So the only way to really answer that question is actually with homework. If you follow, uh, and everyone loves the word thought leader, I think it's thrown around too bloody much, but at the same time, if you follow uh, conversations within what are called PLNs, professional learning networks, amongst education communities on Twitter, you will see the trends that exist that are not going to be talked about in government publications. They're not going to be shown on their websites. It's not going to be shown in curriculum handouts, whatever, that that doesn't work. You actually get real teachers outside of their schools conversing at 8 p.m. in their own time on Twitter. You'll actually get the real finger on the pulse. Now, of course, the people who are actually going to do that are really bought into making education happen, right? So think about it. It actually distills the best minds in education. Now, of course, Twitter is not the only place. There's people hanging out in all sorts of places and maybe social media is not your game. But if you really want to see on a daily basis what the education world's actually thinking, look at the hashtags within Twitter and just see what people are saying. You may not agree with it, but at least you can kind of say, hang on, there's this really cool thing happening in Spain now. Now there's none in Madagascar, whatever it is. That to me is the way to sort of keep abreast of things. No, I absolutely love that. Okay, so we're pretty much where we thought we would be from a time and conversation perspective. And 
there's been so much that we could have dived down the rabbit hole of, but I kind of like the way in contrast to some of our previous conversations, we've actually managed to sort of keep it moving and not <laughs> disappear too deeply down any one for the time being. But I'd love to have another session with you on another occasion. So final question, uh, where can people find out more about you specifically and, and they can drill down more into what you do? Sure, no problems. Okay, so initially, okay, the two organizations I'm involved with. So if you go to physicseducation.com.au, by the way, physics spelled really badly, we teach science. Uh, F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S, education.com.au, that'll find out that organization. The other one is virtually excursionsaustralia com, I believe, .au. I'm going to mess up. Just type in version. All the URLs are in the show notes. So just Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, go to those two because I'll find that. If you want to actually connect with me, I'm totally happy to have a chat. Absolutely. Uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn, honestly. Uh, ben Newsom. Uh, I'm not hard to find. Easy, easy, cool. No, awesome, man. No, thanks heaps. And you can check out the um, backslash projects link that's in the show notes as well for some specifics about the kind of thing that, that Ben and his team deliver um, as he said, prim- primarily on the east coast of Australia, but that's a big area. And mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you heaps for coming to join us and talk about some of the ways that uh, we, all of us that have contact with the younger folk, can uh, help them go out and do what they're going to do to make things better. Tim, I loved it. Love to hang out with you again and have a fantastic morning. Awesome. Thanks, dude. So how was that, right? <laughs> He has got some energy. He has a lot of fun wrapped up there and a high level of seriousness as well, right? Yeah, this is someone who has a real vocational approach to their work. And you know, a huge amount of uh, you know, really significant points raised there, which led me to, to reflect on a number of things about my own you know, sort of educational upbringing. And so rather than recite you know, my thoughts specifically on what you've just heard, I'd sort of share with you what I've been reflecting on and then invite you perhaps to do the same in regards to your own educational context. So talking with Ben has really made me reflect back on what were, you know, the points of my educational experience that really were formative and foundational. Like what were the shaping moments? What were the moments that sort of activated the things that I can now reference as being highly beneficial to me in everyday life and and practicing the work that I do. And they are spread right through the educational experience. But surprise, surprise, fundamentally, they come down to where were my experiences with teachers who had seemingly in alignment with the values that I now hold to be my personal values? Where were the educators who were looking for potential, not merely to sort of promote and provoke achieving a particular test outcome dialogues with educators both in teaching roles and you know sort of support what are considered support staff sort of ancillary to the main sort of curriculum structure and their focus on really what you know what was unique in me and yes sharing what they perceived but also encouraging a sort of an inquiry of my own as to establish what what that was and I think that you know that was really sort of setting a really sort of perennial approach you know in me that these are the things that count you know what is what is you what is yours to do how can you serve 
How can you keep renewing yourself? And what is it about you that enables you to do all of those things? So, invitational question for you. Were you to open up some space and maybe do some journaling or a a sort of a dialogue in motion, if that's your preference, as it often is mine, you know, go for a walk and just pause every once in a while to to record some things right what would be the moments that stand out to you within your educational experience what are they what did those reflections tell you about essentially what worked and what you know just fell away within your educational journey and then what does that inform you about the opportunity that you have now to continue to learn and to enable others to learn My invitation is to explore those questions for yourself. And if you would like to share anything back, then please do. The LinkedIn community is growing, continues to grow. Um, So if you haven't already joined that group, please do. There's a link in the show notes. And if you have, then I would really love to see some comments and some posts from you all about your reflections on these questions. If it's something you'd like to share, then please do so openly. It's something you'd be happy to express and enter into a dialogue with me about. Then feel free to DM me through LinkedIn. Uh, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to get into a, to a discussion with you about these things. We are going to have an event in June. That is coming soon. We're in discussion with a couple of previous guests that we're going to invite back to attend these, these events. So we're just trying to figure out who those people are and exactly when we're going to do that. But the, the, we are targeting the month of June and to try and do something in a time zone which will suit these three areas where we have our sort of strongest communities of engagement. Australia, North America and Canada. And, uh, and Central European time. So hopefully see you at an event in June. For now, of course, be well, lead well, keep doing all you're doing, make the world better. And we'll be back very, very soon with a conversation with a very interesting chap called Steve Moyer. See you there. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you to Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode, to Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face, to Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice, and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. world.